bubble, sometimes called a speculative bubble, forms when the value of an asset ascends to levels disconnected from the actual underlying value of the asset as a consequence of rampant and sometimes even frenzied levels of speculation. So a bubble, in this context, refers to the inflation of an asset's price that is disconnected from its metrics-based value. And speculation, in this context, refers to investing in assets you think might reap outsized rewards if you plan your moves and purchases appropriately. Speculative bubbles tend to follow a pattern, almost a script, moving in stages, beginning with the emergence of a new asset or the widespread surge in fascination with an existing one. This creates a trend which in turn sparks the perception that this asset is currently undervalued because so many other people want to get in on it. Thus, the thinking goes, if I can buy some of this asset now, even if the price is higher than it was before everyone got interested in it, I can probably increase my wealth because that price will continue to go up. I can sell it for more than I bought it for. If an asset was previously priced at $1 by the market and then it suddenly surges to $10 on that same market, I might look at that surge and the popularity of this asset and think, well, it's probably going to keep going up, so even if this is 10 times the previous price, I might still make a profit if I buy now before the price climbs even higher. A bunch of people thinking along these same lines can then lead to a rapid price increase, which in turn serves as evidence for the assumptions of the people who are flogging this asset. Those who are saying it's going to be the next big thing. Look, we told you so. The prices went up astronomically overnight. Better get in on this now before you miss the boat again. And no one wants to be left out, so more people then buy in at these higher prices, which again seems to justify the price increases, which further stokes that fear of being left out, which perpetuates the cycle still further. So the folks who bought in at $10 feel pretty smart when the asset's price goes up to $100, and that results in more people buying in at $100. And some of the folks who bought in at $1 and $10 may also increase their holdings, so the prices climb and climb and climb. New metrics of valuation tend to arise around this point, with the previous prices, which were more likely to be based on actual real-life valuations of these assets, the cost of producing a good, the cost of services associated with that production, things like that. Those are replaced by a new pricing model that's oriented around this rapidly evolving paradigm and the assumption that the new prices are the more accurate ones. And those will thus form the new baseline. So while the asset was recently only worth a dollar a piece, it's now at $100 and climbing. So $100 might come to be seen as cheap. And anything above that becomes more thinkable as a consequence. $100 becomes the new ground level, perceptually. This new paradigm, the new baseline assumed price, is then supported by what's often described as a sense of euphoria in the market. The good times have come and it's difficult to imagine the good times ever going away. This is just what reality looks like now. 
What's more, many of the people who have bought into this asset, or who are thinking of doing so, suspect there will always be a greater fool, someone they can sell the asset to, if they really need to, down the line, before the price has decreased too much, if things go bad. So there's no reason to doubt this new pricing paradigm. All the data they are looking at, and which they consider to be valid, and all the cultural chit-chat within the social spaces they frequent support this new reality, and support the idea that the price will just keep going up. Sometime thereafter, though, and in some cases right before the peak of that euphoric establishment of this new paradigm, and sometimes right after, the smart money, a term for savvy investors who understand what's happening and who in some cases bought in to an existing bubble, but in others actively helped create it to get the prices higher, begin to quietly leave, selling off their assets at these inflated prices to people who are still convinced, in some cases by the words and seeming public actions of these same savvy investors that the prices will continue to go higher, at least for a while, and thus this is still a good investment. Yes, they might be spending $1,000 a pop on assets that used to be worth $1, but the recent trend lines are all upward moving, and perceptually, these assets are now worth a good deal of money. So these people, in an effort to not be left out, to not miss their opportunity to profit off this wave of enthusiasm, keep buying in. And some of what they buy is from these savvy investors who are getting out at or around the peak. This act of selling off and leaving a bubble is called profit-taking. And we see similar actions across most asset types. It's a typical way of doing things, but it's especially brutal in bubble situations because this cashing out by the smart money is usually the first prick of the bubble which releases a bit of air and causes some doubt and results in more people deciding to profit-take. And that in turn eventually causes a spiral in the other direction, which then in turn leads to the final panic stage, where folks who thought the skies were blue and the price on this asset could only go higher bought more and more of it and held on to it with that assumption in mind, only to have the seemingly stable price baseline fall out from under them. At this point, some people continue to hold out hope for a bounce or a return to the bubble era pricing, clinging to the assets they've purchased because although they could maybe sell this previously $1 asset for $50, they spent $150 on them and don't want to sell at a loss. Sometimes there is a bounce, and the price briefly returns to one of those earlier high prices, but in most cases, the price just keeps going down and down at that point, sometimes to a slightly higher price than before the bubble started, because some people hold on to this asset no matter what, and others will continue to buy in, not realizing what's happening and what's happened, or just because they're willing to bet some money that the price will go back up at some point. But in some cases, the price returns to essentially where it was at the beginning, the $1 that the metrics-based market said it was worth in the first place, before the bubble began to inflate. And in most cases, this is the end of a given bubble cycle. And the folks who started and piled into that particular trend have gotten out with profits at the expense of those who suffered losses. And they then move on to some other asset, maybe within the same general space, from one penny stock to another. Or in some cases, they switch 
assets entirely, shifting from stocks to NFTs or from comic books to Beanie Babies. What I'd like to talk about today is a speculative trend that's picking up steam in the United States and how it might dovetail with and possibly be informed and fueled by several other recent global speculative trends. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled Super Bowl Wagers Rise to Records as Online Sports Betting Sweeps U.S. If you don't live in the United States or pay attention to sports, the Super Bowl is a big American football event that pits the two best-performing teams each year against each other in a well-promoted, much-viewed game that's generally considered to be both fairly spectacular in the sense that there's a big halftime performance and a whole lot of razzle-dazzle leading up to and throughout the game on the day of the event, but also in the sense that a whole lot of companies buy ad time during and surrounding the game because it's become a thing where even non-sports fans will sit down and watch with friends and family and soak up the -the over-the-topness of everything, from the game to the performances to the commercials. So a lot of people watch this event, and a lot of people watch all the stuff surrounding the event. And thus, it's a pretty big deal in sports terms, but also economic terms. It's lucrative for everyone involved and has become almost a secular holiday in the United States and in a few other parts of the world where American football is popular. And this event has become even more profitable for even more people and entities since 2018 when the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling that paved the way for sports-related betting in the U.S. beyond Nevada, which was previously the only state that allowed sports betting. Basically, New Jersey's government went to court to challenge the assertion that the U.S. federal government could ban sports betting on the state level. This case had somewhat larger ramifications than sports betting, as it was also challenging the idea that the federal government could control lawmaking at the state scale. So this could go on to inform other cases in the future, including some fairly high-profile cases related to the legalization or decriminalization of marijuana in the U.S. But the most tangible outcome so far has been that individual states can now make betting on sporting events, gambling on the outcomes of horse races and baseball games and pretty much anything else in that vein, legal if they choose to do so. There are ostensible benefits to legalizing these sorts of things, ranging from the depletion of black market sports betting to the increase in gambling-related taxes that can be collected and that then help fill state government coffers. And such funds are often, but not always, then invested in schools and roads and other things of that nature. And so far, 33 states and Washington, D.C. have done exactly that. They've legalized betting on sports within their jurisdictions. Over the years since 2018, then, sports betting in the U.S. has been on the rise, with new states legalizing the industry within their borders at a regular cadence. 
And that drumbeat of new betting opportunities has led to a lot more profit for the gambling industry in the states that choose to legalize it. The year following this ruling, a point where relatively few states had yet decided to allow sports betting of any kind, the U.S. gambling industry overall reported revenue of $43 billion, a new record tipped over the edge by this new burgeoning income stream. That record was shattered in 2021, with the American Gaming Association reporting $53 billion in revenue. $10 billion more than the previous record, in part due to the recovery of in-person casinos following their shutdown in 2020. But sports betting was also cited as being a huge growth subunit for this industry. A few other things have changed in this space over the past few years that have helped augment this burgeoning sports betting industry in the U.S., though. First, is the emergence of digital entities like DraftKings, which started making money via fantasy sports betting, but then segued into real sports betting in late 2018, becoming the first company in the U.S. to offer legal online sports betting services via a mobile app, which made these services a lot more attainable, but also reportedly a lot more addictive. That purported addictiveness was also seen in another app, called Robinhood, which allows people who want to buy and sell stocks to do so via a mobile app without being charged for their trades. This approach to the stock market turned the stock buying industry on its head, with many larger, more traditional trading firms having to adopt a similar free-to-trade model and having to build better mobile apps in order to keep their customers from leaving, but also to try to scoop up some of the younger and more casual stock traders who got into the market because of Robinhood and its convenience and its gamified approach to investing. Folks who used Robinhood were rewarded with randomized stocks for joining and for getting their friends to join. Little animations celebrated every time someone bought another stock. A flurry of clever, gamified user interface choices kept people glued to their phones and through them, the stock market, all day, every day. And this led to several high-profile instances of depression and violence and at least one person taking his own life after a big bet on the market, casually made through Robinhood via his phone, went sideways. But it also created a vast new audience for this type of investment, which made speculating on stocks, rather than just investing in them, a lot more accessible and feasible and fun. This, in turn, both informed and was informed by online communities like the Wall Street Bets Forum on Reddit, where general stock market information and resources were shared, but where the cultural focus was on figuring out how to play the market, Rather than telling each other to buy safe index funds and sharing similar tips on how to consistently reap small rewards with their money, users encouraged each other to place big bets on stocks that could balloon in value, but which could also crash, and which often had a far more substantial chance of collapsing than skyrocketing. These aggressive strategies and this culture of intentional risk-taking eventually culminated in a proposed short-squeeze play oriented around GameStop stock, 
GameStop being a nostalgia-inducing, often mall-based, video game store that many people in their 20s and 30s and 40s who grew up in the U.S. have fond memories of. And a short squeeze in this context, in this particular case, was a means of punishing people who bet against GameStop on the stock market, while also creating a scenario in which the stock, which cost very little per share at the time that the squeeze was proposed, would almost certainly go up, and possibly way up, if a lot of people participated in this strategy. This and a series of other similar bets placed by Wall Street Bets members and other online denizens led to a flurry of activity surrounding what became known as meme stocks, referencing the tendency of these stocks to be nostalgic or beloved or weird in some way, and the memification of them for bubble-creating purposes. Everyone involved knew they were creating artificial demand and thus artificial price hikes, but everyone was also kind of on board with that, either for online cultural purposes because it was fun and kind of funny to mess with all these serious real-deal professional stock people, or because they thought they could get in, make some money, and then get out before everyone else, unloading their meme stocks to a greater fool at the right moment. A similar online culture started to achieve escape velocity around this time as well. And this culture and the space in which they operated was similar enough to the meme stock subculture that stock trading app Robinhood pivoted part of its attention to capture some of this other group's market share before its competition could do the same. Crypto assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum have been around and growing for years, but the mainstreamification of these assets, to the point where there was a chance your parents might own some at the behest of their financial advisor, arrived in the early days of the pandemic, alongside the boom in app-based stock trading. And there was a great deal of overlap between the people trading meme stocks and those buying into, at first, larger crypto assets like Bitcoin, and then increasingly obscure ones, because these assets had many of the same attributes as those stocks they favored, including the potential, if not likelihood, of a ballooning price tag. And as I mentioned, Robinhood got into this space pretty early, allowing people to buy and sell crypto alongside all their favorite stocks. The dream, once again, for many people involved in both of these spaces, was to spend a bit of money in the hopes of getting a lot of money on the other side, after the bubble expanded for a while. And the excitement of that up-and-down cycle, that celebration of expansion and thrill that they might not buy the right asset or might not get out at the right time, is part of why so many people are drawn to this type of subculture and activity. It's not just a potential lottery ticket, which is fun to think about. It's a sense of hope, a sense of collective effort and achievement, a roller coaster ride of ups and downs, and for many people, a sense that they're more skillful or clever than someone else, even in cases where there's little or no skill involved. There's an element of this being a team sport then, because of the communities that accumulate around the different sorts of asset. There's an element of it being a hobby because of how much information one can pick up about even the most niche of subtopics within these spaces, on these forums and on podcasts and YouTube videos and across social media. And there's an element of it maybe being an economically enriching activity 
though many people seem to care as much or more about the hit of pleasure chemicals they get from taking risks and participating in something bigger than themselves than they do about the winnings they might earn if their gamble pays off. That stimulation of the brain's reward systems is part of why gambling of all kinds can be so addictive. User interface decisions on some of these apps amplify that effect and can make it more likely their users will develop habits around gambling and gambling-like activities, including those that we might otherwise call speculative activities because they involve the market or crypto assets or beanie babies or baseball cards rather than dice or slot machines or lottery tickets or blackjack. Looping back around to DraftKings and similar apps that are making it easier to place bets on sporting events, we see some of the same in-app triggers and incentives to keep going and place more bets more often, as we saw in Robinhood. Many of these apps and companies behind them have given away cash and offered other incentives to get people in the door, to get them placing just one bet with the hopes that enough of them will then stick around and build a habit around using their app, their service, rather than someone else's. A mirror of many of the tactics used by Robinhood at the beginning of the meme stock and crypto asset bubbles that reached a new stage of popularity a few years ago. And this effort by these gambling apps seems to be working. In the UK, where sports betting has been legal for a long time, an average of about 6% of the total population places some kind of sports bet each year. The US is a long way from anything even close to that level of saturation. But in New Jersey alone, about $144 million was bet on the 2022 Super Bowl which is up from $117 million in 2021. And the folks running these betting markets took home $7.8 million of this year's haul. In Nevada, $180 million worth of bets were placed on this most recent Super Bowl, a new record, and that's up by 32% last year. The entities running the betting books there pocketed $15.4 million. Now that said, the market for illegal sports gambling in the states is a lot bigger than the legal market. The American Gambling Association estimates that more than $1 billion was wagered legally on this year's Super Bowl, but it's estimated that something like $6.6 billion was bet on the black market. So there's a ways to go before all facets of this industry have gone legit, if indeed they ever do. But that also represents growth potential for the U.S. sports betting market as it expands. There are a lot of people who are already gambling on these games illegally, so it's mostly a matter of these companies and other entities convincing them that it's worth their while to go legit. The surge in legal betting on the Super Bowl this year is being seen as at least partially the consequence of in-app betting which in turn is seen as an extension or continuation or evolution of those other aforementioned speculative activities, which were likewise sparked and perpetuated to varying degrees using similar apps. People who try trading meme stocks or buying obscure crypto assets may look at sports betting and say, okay, yeah, that feels familiar and right. Let's give it a shot. 
And these apps play into that familiarity, offering similar services and interfaces, and a similar thrill and sense of risk. Those invested resources then move from one speculative niche to another, which perpetuates the cycle of booms and busts, of bubbles inflating and popping that I mentioned in the intro. People tend to go where the popular assets are, or where they think popularity might head next, because that's where the opportunity to really win, to increase one's financial resources by placing spectacular bets, are to be found. A company called GeoComply, which tracks mobile-based sports betting transactions, said that it tallied more than 80 million bets over Super Bowl weekend in 2022, which is more than double what they tracked in 2021. Those bets were placed by 5.6 million unique accounts, all of which were using legal betting sources, which is up 95% from last year. A fair bit of that increase is thought to be the consequence of New York coming online as a legal sports betting state, and the NFL deciding to finally start working with some of these bet-making companies, including their official partners, DraftKings, FanDuel, and Caesars Sportsbook. But enthusiasm for this industry as a whole has surprised even those running these platforms. It's a burgeoning market that seems likely to keep hitting new records for the foreseeable future. And while there's a chance this could deplete some of those other bubble-heavy spaces, for a while at least, it could also just expand that ecosystem. People who start out with crypto and penny stocks may try out sports betting, and people who start out with sports betting could eventually try their hand at crypto and stocks. The way this market is being measured may need to be updated, in other words, as the divisions we are assuming exist between these industries may be more porous than our numbers currently account for. book I'd like to recommend today is called Dopamine Nation by Anna Lemke. I didn't choose this book recommendation for this episode because of the overlap that it has with this topic, but it does in fact have that overlap. This is a book about pleasure chemicals and the way our brains operate and the way our body rewards itself for different types of activities, but also how that same mechanism, those reward systems, can be hijacked by things like food and gambling and social media and playing video games, all sorts of things, many of which are fine in moderation, but which also can sometimes hijack our attention and thinking and even our emotions to the point where they begin to seriously distort the way that we live and feel and even think. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Dopamine Nation. And the subtitle there is Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence by Anna Lemke. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find out more about all of my projects, podcasts, and otherwise at understandery.com. And feel free to say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.